A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this Malava Malka episode is uh, going to be a little bit about Meir Bar-Ilan, Bar- Meir Berlin, the youngest child of the Nitziv. I was actually recently reading a memoir that someone was writing about his life. Um, and... Um, just to give you an idea about how to take things in memoirs with a grain of salt, he was writing at one point about how he got to know Rameir Bar-Ilan in the 1950s. So I was thinking that must have been quite a meeting that he had with Rameir Bar-Ilan in the 1950s, considering that he died in 1949. So that just reminded me of of uh, of it, and we'll speak a little bit about his life, a very, you know, extraordinary life, really uh, got around. He starts off with a Valazian background. He's the youngest child of the second marriage of the Nitziv. Um, the Nitziv, uh, in his first marriage, was married into the Valazian family, Rabitzel of daughter, and has... The son, Reb Chaim Berlin, who's later the rabbi in Moscow, and he later becomes a Rosh Hashiva in Valazhin. And uh, his daughter, actually two of his daughters, not at the same time, but uh, one after another, married Reb Rafal Shapiro, who was a Rosh Hashiva in Valazhin. And Reb Nenetziv's wife died, and he marries, in his second marriage, he marries the daughter of Rabbi Chil Michal Halevi Epstein, the Aruch HaShulchan, the Rav in Navardak, and he married, he mar- who is his brother-in-law, he, the Aruch HaShulchan is married to the Nitziv's sister, but now the Nitziv in his second marriage marries the Aruch HaShulchan's daughter, in other words his niece, and in his second marriage, he's ready later on in years, he has two young sons of his old age, one son was Yaakov Berlin, who was also an interesting individual. Died relatively young. He actually died on a visit to Valazhin, so he got to be buried in the family plot. But um, one of his daughters lived and moved to Israel and wrote a memoir, very interesting, about 
her life and her upbringing with this interesting Volozhin Yichus and her father Yaakov Berlin, who's somewhat of an unknown, also an interesting story. And then the youngest child of of uh, the Nitziv is this Rameir Berlin, who eventually changed his name to Barilan. He was inspired when he came to Israel. Later on, he was inspired by one of the early heads of the Haganah, Moshe Bar Ilan, who he was originally Moshe or Ernst Birnbaum, and he changed, he Hebraicized his name to Bar Ilan. So Rameir Berlin decided to change his name also to a more Hebrew name, to Bar Ilan. But originally he's Berlin, obviously, which was also ironic because he lived in Berlin for quite a bit of time, and he had a nice uh, literary career there. He edited a newspaper, a, a Zionist-oriented newspaper called Ha'ivri. He lived in Berlin for quite a few years, and he was Berlin from Berlin, so it, I guess it had a nice ring to it. In any event, he um, he um, he comes from this Velazhin background, like I said, and he grows up in Velazhin to a certain extent, and his father's the Rosh Yeshiva, his uncles are the Rosh Yeshiva, um, his his father, and Rameir Barilan obviously became a great Zionist leader and the head of the Mizrahi, the president of the Mizrahi. It, it was in his family to a certain extent the connection to Eretz Yisrael and to proto-Zionism, I guess we'll call it. His father, the Nitzvah, was a supporter uh, or was supportive of the early Chibastian movement. His half-brother, Reb Chaim Berlin, did live out his later years in Yerushalayim and is buried in Harazesim. Um, obviously, Rameir Berlin takes it to the next level. He becomes very active in the official establishment Zionist movement, which he was the pioneer in his family to do that. And he becomes very active in the Mizrahi, um, eventually its president. And we'll get to his involvement and his activism in the Mizrahi and his leadership there later on. But um, um, he he's born into the second marriage in the Nitziv, so he's not really part of the base Harav, part of the official Valazhin family. He lives there till the yeshiva is closed down um, when he's about 12, 13 years old. Um, so he, and his father dies the next year. So he loses his Valazhin connection as a child and he loses his father as a child. Um, but the world that he grows up in is still Valazhin. In fact, the, later when it's reopened, um, by his half brother-in-law Rafael Shapiro, so it's his. It's his, still his his family. It's his half sibling. In fact, Rafael Shapiro married two of his half sisters um, from the Nitziv's first marriage. When his first half sister died, so Rafael Shapiro went ahead and married his second half sister. So I always thought that since he married two half sisters. So it makes the Rafael Shapiro a full brother-in-law, because a half plus a half, so he's kind of like uh, um, a full brother-in-law. Now, he, he um, so his, so Romero Berlin, ironically, was a half-uncle to Reb Chaim Brisker, but he was much younger than Reb Chaim Brisker, and he was sort of a Talmud of his, actually. Um, and then, of course, on his maternal side, his, um, you know, his... Uh, his uh, grandfather is Rebichil Michal Epstein, the Aruch HaShulchan. His uncle is Rebaruch Epstein, the Torah Tamima. And he was very close with his grandfather. He studied under his grandfather, the Aruch HaShulchan. And allegedly, the Aruch HaShulchan influenced him towards his path in Zionism. Um, at least, 
At least that was what was said at the time. Um, and Rebudele uh, Fishman Maimon, um, who was also Tamar Dalar HaShulchan, and a certain, to a certain extent, a rival of Reb Meir Berlin in within the Mizrahi at the helm of Mizrahi, also said that um, that the Rachel influenced him in his path towards Zionism and the Mizrahi. Now, following the closing of Alajan, his father's passing, he's obviously not going to be able to learn in Alajan at this point. So he goes on to study at the Tel's Yeshiva, and he spent some time there. Ablazer Gordon was still the Rosh Yeshiva and Tel's at the time, so he takes in the atmosphere. Of the, of the elite and the aristocratic sense, both from his family and his upbringing and the yeshivas that he studied in of the Lithuanian, the Lithuanian yeshiva world. And he moves towards Zionism. He joins the Mizrahi, uh, almost from the outset, a couple of years after it was founded by Rizal Yaakov Rhinus, um, who was a Talmud of, of his father, the Nitziv. And he, when he joins the Mizrahi, he eventually takes he becomes the politically the right flank of the Mizrahi. He was moved to the right. He was one of the few people in the Mizrahi who voted against the uh, Uganda plan at the 6th Zionist Congress. He uh, participated in many Zionist Congresses. He eventually was the president of the Mizrahi. He was very active in Europe. Um, in his Berlin years, he was the president of the Mizrahi in the U.S. when he moved to New York. And eventually he led the Mizrahi in Israel. So he literally led the movement on three continents at three very different stages, with the final stage being after the State of Israel was founded. And he was the head, you know, stood at the head almost from the beginning and a very active leader. It took, it didn't just to lend his name or prestige to it. He took a very active role and he saw himself more as an Askin in the Mizrahi because he never took a, um, a, a rabbinical position anymore. He almost had once or twice a rabbinical position, um, at least once in Israel, Petach Tikva, I think, in other places, possibly, but he never took a, a rabbinical position. He always saw himself more as an activist in the public sphere and as a public servant. He also founded the Nishay of the Mizrahi for, for, for women, he um, was active in the Jewish agency, even at the leadership of the Jewish agency, um, for a time being the being a one of the heads of the Jewish agency together with Levi Eshkol and Zalman Shazar. He was one of the heads of the Karen Kayemet, um, you know, in, in land acquisition, and he eventually uh, pressured them to buy land near a uh, near a small Arab village um, outside of Yerushalayim called Beit Machsir which uh, they did buy that land. And uh, after he died in 1949, so a couple of years later, a moshav was built on that land, which had been an Arab village, and the Arabs um, were no longer there after the War of Independence, which is also a story. But um, but the, the moshav that was built there and was built by the Mizrahi movement was named Beit Meir, and carries his name till today. It's named after him, and that is today famous as the host of the NCSY Kolel during the summer months. And I don't know if the participants of the NCSY Kolel every summer know that they're staying at Hallowed Ground, which is named after Reb Meir Barilan. So um, he uh, he 
like I said, he lived in Berlin. He starts his literary, he launches his, what eventually is a long literary career. His first job is at this Hebrew paper, Zionist paper, Ha'ivri, in Berlin. Um, and he moves uh, to to uh, New York right at the beginning of World War One. He's in, and he lives in America for the next 12 years or so. And he basically founds Mizrahi in America. He has to start from scratch. There isn't much going on there. And he heads it, and he takes care of it and gets it going. And he even becomes, during this time, also the president of Yeshiva Srebeni Yitzchakal Khanan, which eventually became YU, not under his tenure, because the president and the head of Rebbein Yitzchakal Khanan at the time, Rabbi Dr. Dove Bernard Revel, he was involved in the Travis family business of his wife in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They were an oil family, a Chabad oil family, I believe, in Oklahoma. And he was he had to take a couple of years leave from his position in YU, and what was eventually going to be YU, and move back to Oklahoma to, to handle the business. So they, there was a, a leadership gap at the, at the head of Rabbi Nitzchakon at the time, and they took Mayor Barilan to be the president of YU. It wasn't, didn't last long. A revel eventually came back. Also, was an issue. The board of, of Rabbi Nitzchakon did not like it that it was becoming politicized. Mayor Barilan was associated with the Mizrahi, and they didn't want it to be a specific political orientation, a specific Zionist orientation. They wanted it to be yeshiva that was open and uh, not politically affiliated with any specific movement. And Rameir Barilan, uh, being at Rameir Berlin still at the head, would prevent that from being so. So it only lasted a few years. But during that crucial time when Revel wasn't there, he actually, Berlin, was actually the head of Rabbeinitzkel Khanan. So the, the, um, he, during this time, he's one of the, even from his position in America, he's one of the heads of the Jewish agency. He's very active. And in that capacity, he plays a crucial role in another twist of the history of the Lithuanian yeshiva world, which he was still very much connected to. Um, in 1924, the Slabatki yeshiva makes a decision to make Aliyah and move to and open the yeshiva branch in Hebron because of the Lithuanian war draft, which I discussed in an earlier episode. And they need to get certificates, which obviously the Jewish agency was in charge of in, in uh, regulating those certificates uh, with the British mandate government. And Mayor Berlin was able to arrange for the first hundred certificates, which was pretty much almost the entire yeshiva. The whole yeshiva, you know, at its peak in Hebron was only 125, 150 bachrams. So he pretty much got the whole yeshiva's certificates uh, through the Jewish agency. He was influential in, in obtaining them. Reb Chatzkel Sarna uh, explicitly mentions this and thanks him for his role in getting the yeshiva over. So he was responsible and he gets the credit for getting the Slobotki yeshiva set up in Hebron. Because that was another role he played. And he pushes, following World War I, he pushes Zionist leaders and others from the Mizrahi to move to Eretz Yisrael and he leaves America in 1926 and he himself moves to Yerushalayim. And he returned to the U.S. a couple of times for visits. He was actually there during, for a period of time during World War II. He was, again, this guy, his activism knew no end and no limits on behalf of the Jewish people. So besides for all his other capacities during World War II and a visit to the United States, both his time in Israel and in the United States, he's very active in Hatzalah work, in rescue work in the Vat Hatzalah, 
and in other capacities also. So he eventually it's, changes his name to Barilan, like I said, and he continues being very active in um, in uh, in um, in the Mizrahi in Israel. Now, the Briskarov, uh, who's sort of his relative, not exactly, like I said, uh, Mayor Berlin was the half-uncle of Reb Chaim Brisker, so he's kind of like the half-great-uncle. I mean, it sounds Hasidish almost, this whole family complication, but it's actually a very Litvish family, a Valajaner family. So he's sort of related to the Briskarov. It's kind of similar families. And when the Briskarov, Rabbi Sukzev, Velvola Salavechik arrives in Eretz Yisrael in 1941. So Rameir Barilan at this point is there to greet him in Haifa when his boat docks and he's there and he offers him his, his welcome and also his assistance in setting him up and he offers him funding. He says, "You want to, I know that the only thing that you are concerned with is teaching Torah. I want to enable you to, to continue teaching Torah and we'll, give you, we'll provide you with funding. And uh, the Briskarov refuses the assistance because of Mayor Barilan's association with the Mizrahi, and he doesn't want to take any. The Briskarov, in general, didn't want to take uh, funding from anyone. As a policy, the Briskarov had that he shouldn't. Uh, he didn't want to be dependent on anyone and take gifts from anyone. That was a very strong policy he had, but especially from someone who was associated with the Mizrahi, even if it was a somewhat close relative. Now, besides for all his public work. He had a very successful and impressive literary career as well. Um, he wrote quite a few stuff, uh, an important memoir. He wrote it in Yiddish, but it was translated into a couple of languages. Fun Valozhin Bizirushalayim. He wrote about uh, growing up in the Nitziv's home and his father and the Valozhin Yeshiva and later his years in Tells, which is also a crucial importance to understanding Tells in those years and later his years in New York. A really an impressive memoir. He wrote that in Yiddish. He wrote a biography of his father, which I believe was in Hebrew. He is later the founder and the editor of the famous Mizrahi newspaper in Israel, Hatsofeh, which was a very successful paper for decades. And then probably his longest lasting and most important contribution was in the in the Sfarim world, in the uh, in the uh, Sifrei Kaidish world of the founding the uh, the Encyclopedia Talmudit project, the Talmudic Encyclopedia project, that initiative, which continues till this very day, which is famously more associated with the Shlomi of Zevin and personalities like Rabbi Shul Buxbaum. And I remember my, one of my Rebbeim in the Mirror before Shmulevitz was very involved in the. And the um, the Farbsteins from Hebron were involved with. So the founder of that project of uh, of uh, encyclopedia of all the Talmudic subjects was Rameir Bar Ilan, and it's also I think they've published over forty volumes, and I think they're only about halfway through. So hopefully there will be another forty something volumes until they finish that project. He's also involved at uh, at some level in the, as the board of directors of the Mizrahi Bank. One of the important projects in the early years before the State of Israel is founded is creating a financial basis for the Yishuv, for the people who live here. And the banking system played a major role in it. It's also a somewhat overlooked role because economics and banking get kind of boring. But the Mizrahi Bank was a bank that was associated with the political movement, the political party called the Mizrahi. 
Now, it's, so it's a certain uniqueness. Now, the Mizrahi Bank's bylaws made it that you had to be Shemer Shabbos in order to be hired, or at least to be on the on the board, or to be in the managing uh, of uh, management of the bank. And uh, for a period of time, in order to come into the Mizrahi Bank, you had to wear a yarmulke. You couldn't go in without a yarmulke. So it sounds a little wild that a bank would have such uh, rules, but it was common actually in those days for banks to be associated with a specific political party. Bank Apoalim was associated with the Mapai, and of course, Pagi, Bank Pagi, Payale Agudis Yisrael was associated with with that branch of Agudis Yisrael. So it wasn't completely unique. Today, Mizrahi doesn't really exist anymore. It's a new entity called Mizrahi Tfachot, where, where I have my mortgage. But it's also a famous bank in Israel. But they don't have those rules anymore. But he stood at the board of directors and the building of that bank, um, which which is also um, a role he played. He died uh, on Pesach, just a few days before this was recorded. So it's somewhat near his yard site, which is why I thought of doing it around now. And it was towards the end of the War of Independence. And because of the... The, during the War of Independence, so Harazesim Cemetery got cut off in East Jerusalem. The Jordanians took it over. So people who died during that time were buried in the temporary cemeteries. One was a, near on the grounds of the Shari Tzedek Hospital in Rehov Yafo then. And the one that he was buried in temporarily at that point was uh, next to where the Knesset is today, a place called Sheikh Bader, where the, the, this Villa Rebbe is still buried there. So he was buried there temporarily. That was temp- temporary cemeteries. When I do tours of Yerushalayim, so some of these walking tours, we sometimes explore these unknown and small little tiny uh, temporary cemeteries, which still exist. And obviously no new burials there. In the smack in the center of what's now a bustling uh, city, but then was was uh, used as temporary cemeteries. And then he's reburied in what was in another new cemetery following the cutoff from Harazesim, the Sanhedria Cemetery, which is also in the middle of the city today, right near Amadashkol and Sanhedria. And there's a whole section of Mizrahi leaders. Rav Herzog is buried there, and Rav Wolf Gold, and, and uh, Zarach Varavtig was later buried there. Other Mizrahi leaders, so he was reburied there, which is also a place where we sometimes visit on our tours, our walking tours of Yerushalayim. One of the things that was named for him after he died, which... He had nothing to do with the project, but the Mizrahi, American Mizrahi movement decided to name the university that the American Mizrahi movement founded in Israel in 1955. They named the university for him, Bar Ilan University. He never had anything to do with the project. It was the uh, initiative of uh, an individual named Pinchas Churgen, who also learned that the later renewed Valazhin Yeshiva um, in the early part of the 20th century, and he became the first president of Bar-Ilan. Um, and it was a very controversial move. The government and the other universities in Israel were not excited about the opening of Bar-Ilan University because it was associated with the Mizrahi, and it was its stated goal when it opened was that it would be a religious-oriented university to combine religion with, uh, with university studies, and uh, and uh, and uh, the government did not see that with favor to combine religion with the university framework. The other universities, uh, Hebrew University, for instance, was not excited about the idea. Until today, to a certain extent, there's a certain rivalry uh, between the two places. 
and and in fact the government and the the um, the uh, the body that oversaw all higher education in Israel did not recognize Barilan's right to exist, Barilan University's right to exist for the first eleven years of its existence. And this, as far as I know, is an unknown uh, fact to most people. But from 1955 till 1966, the first 11 years of Bar-Ilan, the degrees that Bar-Ilan University uh, issued came, were recognized, were issued by, not by Bar-Ilan, which was an un- unrecognized entity, but was actually issued by NYU, New York University in Manhattan. And uh, they, you know, because the university was founded by Americans, the American Mizrahi, who were principally from New York, they were able to arrange that the degrees uh, bachelor's, master's, and doctorates were issued by NYU. In 1966, finally, the State of Israel recognized Bar-Ilan's university's right to issue degrees, and since then, Bar-Ilan's been an independent university. So, yeah, that's named after him, like I said, the Moshav Beit Meir. You have Rehov Bar-Ilan in the center of Yerushalayim. is also named after him, which ironically became famous because of all the demonstrations against Chil Shabbos that took place there in the 1990s. So so you have that is named after him. And there's other places that's named after him as well. So that's a little bit about Mayor Bar-Ilan and his legacy. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips to places of interest of Jewish history. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.